Basic Bible Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Thompson, and today we are continuing our series on the doctrines of grace, otherwise known as Calvinism. And today we are getting to the big one. We're getting to the L. This is where uh, a lot of we call four-point Calvinists will jump ship, and I think it's fair to say this would probably be the most controversial uh, of the doctrines of grace, and that is the issue of limited atonement. Believe it or not, there are people who hold that Jesus did not die for every single person. Now, of course, if you've been on this pod, you've been listening to this podcast, you already know that. In fact, you're probably already reformed to some degree. But I remember as a teenager hearing this for the first time and just being absolutely shocked out of my mind. And I think that's a, a common reaction from a lot of people. So we're just going to come just jump right into it. Even as a Calvinist, I would say, of the five points we typically call Calvinism, this is the one I, I kind of come into with some fear and trembling. But today, we have a special guest on the podcast. His name is Josh Nimi, and he is the head of Expository, Expository Parenting and the author of a new book entitled Greater Than Aaron, The Supremacy of Christ's Limited Atonement. So, Josh, welcome to our podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, I'm honored to be here. Um, like you said, uh, this is a difficult doctrine for many, but uh, hopefully we can provide some enlightening thoughts today. Yeah, you're kind of in the hot seat today. Um, but uh, <laughs> right. before we even jump into that, tell us a little bit about uh, expository parenting. I mean, it's a book, and it's also a ministry. It's got a great website here I've actually just been going through today. And uh, just give us a little blurb about what you do. Sure, yeah. So expository parenting, uh, the, the name of the ministry, is all, and it's also the name of uh, the book that kind of founded the ministry. Um, as a uh, as a young parent, uh, just several years ago, I realized that uh, I just didn't have a lot of human wisdom to rely on when when raising my kids. Uh, but at the same time, I was also studying scripture, learning the Bible verse by verse, listening to great expositors, and realizing that when it comes to the doctrine of uh, sola scriptura and the sufficient sufficiency of scripture. Um, my conviction was that the Bible had everything I need to be equipped for life. And so it kind of hit me that, okay, if I want my kids to be prepared for anything that life's going to throw at them, you know, I want to make sure that they're ready to go the, the minute they leave my home at, at 18 years old or, or whenever, um, the, the doctrine of Sola Scriptura will work for them too. What's good for the goose is good for the gander. And so I realized that in order to, to equip them, I've got God's promise that, all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be fully equipped for every good work. Mm-hmm. And so if I want my kids to be fully equipped for every good work, what do I need to do? I need to deliver the full counsel of God to them um, within that 18-year span of time that I have. Yeah, I now, think, that's a lofty task. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, sure. No, I, I think, you know, I, I reading through your website, I've been going through that today, and, uh, you know, there's really not a lot of great resources for uh, parents who actually want to teach their kids more than just, you know, your basic Bible stories as if the Bible were just a storybook. And uh, so what you have on the, on the site is really excellent, and I want to, you know, commend you for that. And I, I'd love to have you back on the podcast just to talk about that as well. Oh, sure. Absolutely. I'd <laughs> love to. I could talk for a while on that, too. <laughs> you know, I... I my family and I, uh, oh, my family and I, yeah. My wife and I adopted four kids, and we were thrown in the midst of this and really realizing, wow, uh, we need help. <laughs> and uh, so I'm thankful yep. for, for your ministry there, and I, I plan to use a lot of the stuff here I just found. 
and uh, I got to buy the book, <laughs> of course. Perfect, perfect. So you, Hopefully you, it's you revolutionary. You know, the, the, there we go. <laughs> there we go. You know, I'm not in it for the sales. I, I wrote, uh, and really all my writing is first and foremost, um, obviously for the Lord to glorify him, but on a human level, it's uh, for the, the well-being of my family because as I look out at evangelicalism, um, and again, this was even a decade ago, I realized that they're just not going to be, be able to give my family the truths that they need. So I had to step into that role. Well, um, we're hoping yeah, that... Yeah, uh, parenting goes... Go ahead. Yep, sorry. Sorry, I, we're, we're probably getting a little bit of feedback or, or something here because I, I, I keep stepping on your words. <laughs> no problem, no problem. Nope. But I, I'm hoping uh, both of your books will get the, uh, the basic Bible podcast bump. And, uh, you know, we'll see you on the New York Times bestseller list, you know, within a week or two <laughs> of airing. And so I don't I don't plan to retire on these books, but, uh, <laughs> you know, the more people that can hear truth, the better. Right. <laughs> well, let's talk about limited atonement. Um, first, I, I know as a Calvinist, sometimes we, we don't even like that that term. Um, I, I know others prefer the prefer the term uh, accomplished redemption or even actual redemption. Uh, but mm-hmm. what what do we mean by limited atonement? Yeah, so you're right. A lot of people will refer to it as particular redemption or definite atonement. Um, I'm a, I'm perfectly fine, perfectly comfortable, obviously, with the term limited atonement um, as it fits into that tulip acronym that Calvinism is known for. Um, but when we speak of limited atonement, kind of like I point out in the book, um, we're, we're talking about the extent of the atonement. For whom did Christ die? Was it a universal thing? Was Christ's death for every single individual of all humanity, or was it limited to a lesser subset of that group? So, we're talking about the idea that Christ died, and his death actually did something. So, the universalist, or not the universalist, that's a different category, the universal <laughs> atonement advocate, I'll say, would say that Christ's death made salvation a possibility for for every person. But we would say that Christ's death actually brought salvation. It accomplished everything that Christ set out to do. And in your book, um, you again, the, the title of the book is Greater Than Aaron, The Supremacy of Christ's Limited Atonement. You walk us through Leviticus 16. And you talk about Christ's death being representative, substitutionary, and, and all the way through that. So talk to us a little bit about just uh, how, because it's a, it's, a, it's a great, uh, as someone who struggles with this, reading, that, reading this book and how you present it really helped me to see uh, not just that this is just a controversial doctrine that we should you know, take a stance on, but this is actually really important. It's, a, it's an important concept to grasp, to really see salvation itself the way God wants us to see it. And so uh, tell us how you use Luke 16 to uh, talk about what we would maybe consider a New Testament doctrine, but it's grounded in the the Old Testament uh, concept of atonement. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot that could be said there. Um, you know, the book of Hebrews relies heavily on Leviticus 16 um, in order to describe why Christ's atoning work is so much better than the Old Testament Levitical uh, sacrificial system. That's really the premise of Hebrews, is in order to explain why it's better and why we need to uh, come in and stay within the New Covenant. Don't go back to those shadows, because they were actually pointing you to something greater which has come. And that's really the premise of the book. 
But the problem is that so many people don't have that foundational understanding of the Old Testament in order to really even grasp something like the book of Hebrews, the argument that, that the writer of Hebrews is making. And the writer of Hebrews more or less assumes, you know, he's speaking probably to a primarily uh, Jewish audience, so he can just assume that they're familiar with right. the ins and outs of that system. So what we need to do is we need to go back to that system and understand those ins and outs. Because the reason, I think one of the main reasons that a lot of people believe in uh, a universal atonement, that Jesus died for every single individual, first of all is because that's the way they've been evangelized. They go to a revival meeting or they, they uh, see somebody on the street or they get a gospel track, and what is one of the first things it says? Jesus died for you. So it's just this blanket statement that goes out to everyone, Jesus died for you. That's how people are introduced to Christianity. And so that kind of takes a, a hold on them immediately. But then going on from there, uh, people aren't getting a well-rounded, uh, a thorough, meaningful understanding of the Old Testament. I mean, it's almost like we have this sub-canon within Scripture to where we focus on the New Testament and then maybe just the Gospels and then maybe just Matthew and yeah. then just the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, we just really... And those are, obviously, everything is, is important, all Scripture. Do, do you think that that's um, because that, of, a, of a dispensational, I don't want to say uh, overtaking of evangelicalism, but certainly uh, a dominance among, I think, popular evangelicalism? Well, it will, and, and uh, I hope this doesn't get disqualified me in your eyes, but to be honest with you, I am a dispensationalist. That may surprise you. Okay, well, you thanks for I, joining I, us. I, We're going to be... No, oh, just kidding. <laughs> right. No, but, but in all honesty... Uh, there is certainly that mentality. I will uh, certainly affirm that, that there's kind of this, well, that was the Old Testament. That's for, for those people. The New Testament yeah. is for us. I, I will wholeheartedly embrace that critique. Um, and so that's why we have to get back here, because the second thing is that if people understand the categories of atonement, the various things that Jesus did in his atoning work, then that alone will raise some serious questions that will have people reconsidering whether or not Jesus died for everybody. Even if they don't end up there in the end, I, I obviously I hope they do, because that's the truth of what the Bible teaches, but even if not, most people don't even have these meaningful categories of atonement to interact with. They just It's kind of this generic, Jesus died for you. Right. Well, okay, what does that mean? What did, he, what did he do on the cross? And like you pointed out, sadly a lot of people have this hypothetical view of the atonement that Jesus died uh, to make salvation a possibility, uh, which, of course, you won't find that anywhere in Scripture. Right. Um, yeah. And so, as you, as you oh, walk through this, um, talking about Christ being a representative, a substitutionary atonement, a intercessory atonement, I want to talk about that, that idea of intercessory, because I think that really blew me away. And again, I've, I'm, I, I've been studying this, this topic now for many years, uh, more years than I'd like to admit, and um, I've read pretty much what there is out there, but you really did a great – I had never really considered this idea that if Christ is our intercessor, that kind of demands a, a limited atonement. If, if Christ and the Father are one, uh, then – well, let me ask you, can uh, I explain that, that concept for us and, and why that's so uh, – very interesting. Yeah, yeah. So, again, we're kind of jumping into the middle of the book, in the middle of chapter right. uh, of Leviticus 16, that chapter. But um, basically, if you look at the Old Testament system, there was a, uh, an altar of incense, of course, within the tabernacle. And that smoke rising up, that burning of incense, represented 
the intercessory work of a priest, because, again, this, we, we kind of have to work our way into this understanding, but sinful man cannot approach a holy God, and so we need that mediator. We need an intercessor to go before us. And so that smoke rising up represented um, the, the priest interceding on behalf of the people. Um, you know, there's several places in Scripture. Luke 1.10, for example, uh, describes the multitude of people in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. Uh, Psalm 141, 1 through 2, they also uh, kind of explain the correlation between prayer and incense. So there's this understanding that as you burn incense, uh, as the priest burns incense, he's kind of setting forth the merits of the sacrifice, praying to God on behalf of the sinful people who are outside the tabernacle. Now, the reason this is so important, there's kind of two main reasons. First of all, uh, the, the intercession, the, the, that incense that was burned, um, was ignited in flame by coals taken from the bronze altar outside of the tabernacle. The priest would, would take those coals in a fire pan, bring them inside to the, in, the altar of incense, and use those to ignite that incense uh, for the prayer, to represent prayer. There's a one-to-one -one correlation, then, between sacrifice and intercession. So, for example, the, the one for whom uh, that, that, uh, that substitutionary sacrifice is made is also the one for whom the high priest uh, pray, prays. There's a one-to-one -one correlation. The priest intercedes for the same people that he just offered that sacrifice on behalf of. So, if we can understand that Jesus only intercedes for a limited number of people, which in the book I, I go to John 17, the high priestly prayer to, to explain, uh, by definition there has to be that one-to-one -one relationship in which Jesus only sacrificed himself on behalf of those same people. Now there's a second aspect of intercession that's really important too, is that Jesus' prayers never failed. He and the Father are one. He prays in perfect accord with his Father's will. That's all throughout um, the New Testament, especially John chapter 6, for example. Um, but obviously, anyone who has any understanding of, of Christ's ministerial work understands that, uh, you know, as the Son of God, he is one with the Father. And so, if we actually say that Jesus is praying for the salvation of every single individual, well, we know that not every single individual is going to be saved. And so, we now we have Christ as our high priest praying prayers that fail. And that's a big yeah. problem. Yeah, that's a huge problem. Uh, and I mean, Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That, uh, that, that really uh, puts things in perspective, because if the high priest is praying prayers that, as you said, fail, that the Father will not grant, that mm -hmm. uh, undercuts even Jesus' role as Messiah, his role as Lord. Uh, they just won't stand up in, in that. Exactly. It's, it's, it's an assault on, on Trinitarian harmony. Yeah. You know, Jesus said, John, John 10, 30, I and my Father are one speaking one in mind, one in plan, one redemptive work, and now uh, that's, that's totally disintegrated. Now, in each of your chapters, you, you bring up the rep uh, representative atonement, substitutionary atonement, all of this, and these are things that I grew up, I, I wouldn't call myself an Arminian, but I grew up, you know, an independent fundamental Baptist, and, and these are things that we would agree with um, up until the point where we say, no, no, it's not. But in, 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 your, in each chapter, you, you, get, you lay out very clearly what these things mean, how they apply it here in Luke 16, and then you apply it to the issue at hand. And I, th I think you do a, a really good job of explaining all of those. Um, and I don't want to give away all of this because I do want people to buy your book. Um, I do want people, I, we do want that basic Bible podcast bump 
in sales from Amazon, uh, you know, in a week or two. Uh, but I want to talk about the, the last chapter. Uh, you mentioned it's an assembled uh, atonement. And this is the one that I, I was kind of waiting for you to get to. Because in the back of my mind, as I'm reading all these others, I'm thinking, okay, but in the end, uh, you're talking about a, an atonement that is made for the people of Israel, but not all of those people are going to be in heaven. Not all of those people are true followers of God. And you, you answer that right at the end. Uh, so I'm going to ask you to answer that for our, for our audience now. How does, how does this idea of an, assemble, an assembly uh, play into the idea of a limited atonement? Sure, yeah, I'd be happy to. And, you know, this chapter really is where the rubber meets the road for a lot of people like yourself, where we've got to finish the deal here, because those that do have an, some kind of an understanding of Leviticus 16 will raise this objection in the end, um, in that, you know, they would say, well, the high priest, you know, Aaron, he, he atoned for the entire nation of Israel, but, but obviously they went all saved, right? Um, and so that's a valid uh, argument um, until we get to the specifics of the text here. And so I titled this chapter An Assembled Atonement. It's not very catchy, but it's true to the text. Right. Um, so basically, Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement, was this yearly atoning work, Yom Kippur, really Yom Kippurim, uh, but it's this, uh, this yearly um, convocation, you know, this call to worship to the entire nation, uh, just like other feast days, you know, Feast of Trumpets or Feast of Booths, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And uh, so when you look at what Moses prescribes uh, for this and, and how he describes the Day of Atonement, uh, he doesn't say that Aaron is going to make atonement for the entire nation. He doesn't say that Aaron's going to make atonement for all the people of God. Uh, if you look at Leviticus 16.33 in particular, it says, uh, He shall also make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. And that word assembly uh, comes from the Hebrew word kahal, uh, which, as the, you know, as the English word implies, it, it's a group of people gathered together. Uh, so it wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't the entire nation. It was those who drew near to the tabernacle on the prescribed day, and they were waiting outside as the high priest is uh, performing his priestly duties. Um, it's not, an, it's not, as it mistakenly understood, uh, an atonement for the entire nation. It's a crowd of people gathered together for a particular purpose. And I've got examples in that chapter of other uses of kahal. Um, a group of people who execute justice, Ezekiel 23:47. Uh, people prepared for military action, Genesis 49:6. Um, but there's also religious um, uses of that as well, not uh, beyond the Day of Atonement. For example, uh, Ezra 10:1. You know, when the people have returned from exile, um, there's an assembly there where Ezra confesses. Uh, sins and it's everyone who gathers near they tearfully confess alongside him um, you've got other examples uh, Joshua 835 that's where Joshua builds an altar to God and he reads the law of Moses to the Kahal of Israel those men women children and, and even foreign proselytes who gathered together to hear that law obviously they would have to be there in order to hear the hearing you know, the, the preaching of the law the instruction of the law so what you have there is you have people that have to draw near, and it's those who draw near um, who constitute the, the kahal, the assembly, for whom atonement is made. Hmm. 
Um, and again, we, we need to make sure that we don't think about this inversely. It's not that they drew near, which may be atonement limited, it's that the atonement was by definition limited only to those who draw near. There is there's so much more we can talk about. Our time is slipping away here. Um, and I'm kind of going back and forth uh, in the book. Uh, the very first chapter, uh, just looking at my notes here, you really do, you, uh, and I don't mean just keep heaping praise and praise and praise on you. Uh, I'll, I'll try, because you're a dispensationalist, so I'm going to throw that in there. Um, there so we go, yep, yep. Praise and praise. But, um, and I, I used to be a dispensationalist, so I'm not going to. But anyway, um, in no the first chapter, I'm talking no about problem. representation. And, and in that, you address, I think, one of the most common objections I hear to a limited atonement. And that's the idea, well, yes, Christ died and, and, and paid the price for sin, but you still have to apply that yourself. You still have to somehow accept it. And, and, you, and, you, and you're talking about the idea of the, the priestly function of Christ— and uh, there never was like a, a vote among the people in, in Leviticus 16 about do we accept this or not. And in fact, it, that couldn't happen even um, because that is a, a, a priestly job that we're not qualified for. Um, maybe just expound a little bit, little bit more on that and then we'll kind of kind of wrap things up. Uh, well, there's a couple other verses I want to ta- tackle, but uh, maybe just address that a little bit because that is a, a very common idea or misconception. Yeah, so, so what I do throughout the book, again, this is a verse-by-verse exposition yeah. of Leviticus 16, um, but in addition to that, so in, in addition to setting forth a positive presentation of atonement, I also, in the course of the argument, refute objections that are very common. And like you said, the apl- that whole phrase about apply the atonement is one of the most common, you know. Uh, typically, people will say, you know, Jesus died for every I- individual, but it's up to each individual to apply the atonement in order to be saved. Now, right off the bat, that kind of language is, uh, you know, philosophical. It's not like you can go to a text and say, well, people have to apply the atonement. But what people will typically do is they will go to the description of Passover, and uh, which undoubtedly, I will wholeheartedly agree, is, is a, uh, a foreshadowing of the concept of atonement. Right. But what they'll say is, well, see, you know, in order to be spared from death, people had to, uh, you know, kill this lamb and then apply its blood to their doorposts. And if not, well, they're dead. And that's typically how it is, is articulated. The problem is, again, that's not what the text says. If you go to the text, what you'll see is an act of representation in which one person, the head of the household, would slay the animal and apply its blood to the doorpost, but it was not the head of the household who was in danger of death. It was his firstborn son. You see that exactly with Pharaoh, for example, who did not do this, of course, and Pharaoh did not die. He did not apply the atonement, but he didn't die. His firstborn son did. And so there's no individual applying the atonement because, again, that's like you pointed out, that's a representative priestly function. And we are not priests uh, in this sense. Obviously, we are priesthood of of believers, but um, in terms of what Christ did on the cross, we don't apply that. It was Jesus acting solely as high priest who, if you want to use that term, applied the atonement. He did all the application. He applied it. To whom he wanted. I'm not a fan of that language anyway, um, but again, what it does is it refutes this, this strange philosophical idea that the atonement is almost like a, uh, a dermal cream or, you know, something that we take, rub into our hand, you know, rub into our hands and then smooth onto our skin. We need to apply the atonement, and you hear that all the time, and, and that's just not in the text. It's certainly not in the Passover account that is very common, and, and again, without just 
um, strawmanning the argument, in the book, I cite uh, particular theologians, academics, scholars who make that very argument. Mm. So I'm not just making that up and trying to attack it myself. All right, let me bring up, uh, as we wrap things up here, two verses that are commonly used against the New Testament passages that are uh, the universalist passages. And I'm going to skip over some, but um, Hebrews 2.9 says that but we see him for who a little was made for a little excuse me <clears throat> but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone well taste death for everyone that's a that's a close the book case case closed right yeah i mean that's another common one it's like with any passage um, and just before I answer that, let me just point something out here is that that's what sets this book apart from a lot of the other books is that this is not a cherry picking verse presentation, even limited atonement. This is a verse by verse in context exposition, which I am not aware of any other book that does this. And especially not from an Arminian perspective, right? Uh, that anyone could, could walk verse by verse through a consistent text and describe it in context. So there's a lot, there's all kinds of, uh, cherry-picked verses that are thrown out. We could spend eternity, you know, refuting all of them. Um, but with that said, if here is a great example where if you just keep on reading, you'll find out who that all is that Jesus tastes death for, um, bringing many sons to glory, verse 10. Um, he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified, his brothers, verse 11. Um, tw- verse 12, which is a verse that I actually bring up um, in, in the book, in that sixth chapter, talking about the Kahal, here's Jesus uh, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation, which is a quote from the Psalms, using the Hebrew word Kahal, I will sing your praise. So again, here we have Jesus uh, acting as high priest for his congregation. Verse 13, behold, I am the children God has given me. It's a quote from Isaiah, but used here, Speaking of Christ and, again, those given to him uh, by the Father. I mean, we, it's, it's all throughout this entire uh, discourse here. It tells you exactly who that is. Those who want to cherry pick that one verse aren't going to let the writer of Hebrews define what he means. Right. And, of course, there, there are many cases where we could say all doesn't mean all. You know, it, I mean, you have to go to the context and read the verses before and after and understand the argumentation of the author. Otherwise, it's just, it's disrespectful ultimately to do that. Well, and I would even add to that, all, usually, even in common language, common speech that you and I would use, all hardly ever means all. Um, you know, like, for example, the word world, uh, you know, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world. Well, how often do we use the word world to mean every person who ever lives and ever will? Uh, I don't, you exactly. Know, you're you talking know, about World War II. You're, I'm you're not talking, teacher, I, right? I didn't fight in World War II. You know, um, yeah, yeah, and, and you're, you're a teacher, so you could stand in front of your class and say, you know, are we all here? Yeah. Um, obviously, you're not taking attendance for, for all nations, you know, every single person right. kind of a thing. <laughs> you have a, a scope to your word, all of whom uh, most people are just inserting subconsciously the, the phrase of humanity, all of humanity. So they're that's... actually putting, they're defining the scope, they're just not, um, they're not, Owning up to that fact, and and not to get off topic too much, but I think that's one of the products of modern day preaching because there is less of an emphasis on book by book, line by line expository preaching. 
you know, we pick a verse here and we pick a verse there, and we're not taught to actually study out a passage to where things like context really doesn't matter. It's 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 almost just what I want it to mean at that time, what means how that affects me most at the moment. But that's another story for another time. Uh, I do want to bring up that's one other exactly verse. Right. Um, and that's the one, I, you know, I still have trouble wrapping my head around, but, you know, I apply the principle that we, we uh, explain the tougher verses through, uh, through the lens of verses that we do or passages that we do understand. But that's Second uh, Peter 2.1, talking about the context of false teachers. Uh, but false prophets also rose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. So here we have false teachers who clearly are not saved. They are going to bring destruction upon themselves, but they're denying the master, or in some translations, the Lord, who bought them. So how, how do we tackle that? Right, and, and you know, again, I didn't tackle this one in the book only because I the book would be, you know, ten times as long right. as I, if I went to every single verse. I tried to tackle verses that were within the context of what I was trying to explain and, and the common objections to it. Um, but here, Second Peter 2, 1, like you said, uh, we always start with the clear and then, um, well, actually, I shouldn't even say clear. I should say start with ones that are difficult for us to understand and then easy to understand and then move to the ones that are more difficult to understand. Uh, I, I read through a great, uh, a great uh, doctoral thesis by a guy named Ted Bigelow, and uh, he describes exactly what's going on here, which is this um, owner of the house motif that you actually see in other places in Scripture. Um, in Second Peter, for example, second, the, the point of Second Peter is to speak of false teachers that are within the church. These aren't people that are, uh, you know, totally off, off the radar, you know, out on their own path. These are people within the church that are drawing people away. That's why he says, you know, these people are going to rise up among you. And so that concept applies exactly to what happened um, in the time of that Israelite ex, uh, exodus, in that you had these false teachers arising with, within the people. They were drawn out of Egypt. And yet, after being drawn out of Egypt, being with this group of people, they then led the, those, peop those same people astray. Um, so that's what Peter's getting at there, is that these are people who have been drawn out of the world in the sense that they're within the church. They're, they're within that protective umbrella, that umbrella of truth um, of the church. And yet, they're leading people astray. So it's not a redemptive by it's not a uh, a purchase with Christ's blood that you see in other passages, um, you know where you have that redemption price. But what it is is it's a drawing out of the world with the people, the true people of God, the same way that the Israelites were drawn out. Um, I don't have the the verse uh, on the top of my head, but you'll see this in Luke. Uh, Jesus talks about uh, a master purchasing slaves, and some of those slaves are disobedient, ultimately suffer punishment. Uh, you also see this in Second Timothy, where Paul talks about uh, vessels that are useful to the master versus those that aren't. So again, you have vessels all within the same household, but some are not useful to the master. And so it's not a redemptive purchase, but this is a, a purchase of ownership um, in terms of being drawn out of the world system, being drawn in, you know, into church fellowship. Uh, and a great sub-example of that 
not to get too far off the, the, the beaten path here, but when Paul talks about in First Corinthians, um, parents, and if one of them is, is, is a believer, uh, the children are holy, you have a very similar concept there in that it's not saying that children are saved because they have a, a Christian parent. What they're saying is that there's this redemptive umbrella, in a sense, of, of Christian truth that um, allows those kids to be set apart from the world. The assumption, obviously, is that a child growing up with at least one Christian parent is going to be hearing a regular dose of Christian truth. And so, obviously, that kid is, is set apart, in a sense, in that he has access to truth that a kid of uh, a child of, of two non-Christian parents would not have. That's the distinction there. So you see kind of that sub uh, paradigm within the family, even that you also see within the church. All right. Well, we're going to wrap things up here. We're already a little over time. And so I apologize to you, our guest, as uh, I, I said, this would be like 25 minutes. So I want to be mindful no of your problem. time. No um, but we always wrap things up with recommended resources. And of course the, the resource we're recommending today would be Greater Than Aaron, The Supremacy of Christ's Limited Atonement. And, uh, Josh, your other book as well, Expository uh, Parenting. I want to recommend those. We'll have links to, uh, to those uh, on our website. And uh, you can also check out expositoryparenting.org, uh, where you can find uh, a blog. You can find some uh, really helpful outlines of uh, New Testament, Old Testament books. And So, Josh, I want to thank you for uh, coming on the program, and thank you for just these resources that you provided for uh, the greater body as a whole. You know, it's my pleasure, and thanks for uh, taking some time to, to hear me out here. Thanks for the great discussion, great questions, and hopefully it was helpful. All right, I want to thank you all for listening, and tune in next time as we're, as we're continuing the series in the Doctrines of Grace, and so we're working our way through the TULIP. And so next week we're going to be joined by Pastor Aaron White uh, here in Janesville, and he'll be talking about irresistible grace. And so be looking forward to that. In the meantime, check out our website at www.basicbiblepodcast.org and check us out on Twitter at Basic Bible Cast and on Instagram, same handle. And, and Josh, you're also on uh, Facebook and uh, Twitter as well. Yeah, that's right. Uh, at Real Josh Neemi, you can find me there. Uh, Josh Neemi was already taken, so I had to add the real. <laughs> but I'm on Twitter as well, yep. All right, and so, again, thank you for listening, and also check out our, our Facebook page. You can Google that at, at Facebook, Basic Bible Podcast, and you can join the discussion there. So until next time, have a great rest of your week.